0: You're listening to the ninth episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God, despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. (music) Episode 9, The End I've mentioned how when I started to meet new brethren friends and some of them drank and smoked, it was prophesied that I would certainly become an alcoholic and smoker too. This did not happen. It was also direly warned that if we entertained ourselves freely in this wicked, wicked world and wandered through our lives at liberty without ensuring we were meeting the Brethren expectations, that the Lord would speak, and we all knew the Lord spoke through death. My experience being raised in the Brethren gives me this outlook. Expectations Matter If your expectations are too high for a movie or album or something, The best it can hope to do, if it is very successful, is to possibly meet your expectations. With age comes the experience of sequels-sucking, of people who used to treat you well ignoring you or getting passive-aggressive, of your favorite things not holding the same level of interest forever. Expectations can be too high, and that's tough. I think watching endless porn and or rom-coms can make people experience their relationships as more of a letdown than they otherwise would, their expectations having been raised unrealistically high. Expectations can be too low also. I remember when my father gave me the sex talk. I was maybe nine. He took me into my parents' bedroom where they presumably had sex, and we sat on his bed where presumably they had sex, and he told me what sex was, clearly, deeply uncomfortable. Of course, he said intercourse, feeling that the word sex was too careless and vulgar. He was mortified to have to explain all this, and to make matters worse, when Dad revealed that the man puts his diddle in the woman's you-know-what, I started laughing uncontrollably. Dad said if I wasn't going to take this seriously, he wasn't going to continue. He said men and women often liked intercourse, and it explained a lot of their behavior. It was, according to Scripture, the reason a man left his father and mother and cleaved unto his wife. I would, he said, leave he and my mother and cleave to a wife of my own one day, too. And in the Bible, he said, when it said fornication, Dad said it was very definitely talking about people doing you-know-what when they weren't married. This was wrong. This was the main reason young people got kicked out of the Brethren, but we understood why it would be tempting to do it, so we usually let them back in after they'd sat in the segregated area in the back of the meeting hall for a couple of months. Then he explained to me that this is why women have to be so careful around men and about how they dressed and so on. You see, he told me, women have to say no because men can't. Wow. Dad, in fact, made a point to never be alone in a house let alone a room with a woman. Because it seemed, if it was in any way theoretically possible, that two people might have done, you know, it, the rest of the gathered saints could certainly be forgiven for assuming from then on that they definitely had done it. Well, I grew up to think two things on that subject. First of all, I know it might make people doubt my virility to say it, but we men actually can say no to sex. We totally can, even with women who totally do it for us, so to speak. we're totally into women we want to see if they are beautiful inside and out turning down bad idea sex or wrong time sex or ethically insupportable sex is not only something that women can do after all i was raised with expectations for men that were too low i have on numerous occasions said no to women who though sometimes very pleasing were incredibly bad ideas for a multitude of reasons another thing what a way to raise a generation of little rapists lowering little boys' expectations of whether they have any control over whether they initiate and in fact continue sexual activity at all, telling them control isn't possible for them, that they have no say over their own bodies, viewing women who act or dress sexy around you without your consent as doing some kind of an assault on you. I wonder if this spilled over into other areas. We were all told, of course, That if we ever smoked or drank or did drugs, we'd be instantly addicted and probably would end up dead. I had to wonder how many people tried cigarettes out of curiosity, assuming they were now addicted to them, and this became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I wonder how many guys told girls they couldn't stop because they were real men. I wonder how many teens had never grown up in an environment where people drank a single glass of wine or had a single beer so the first time they got their hands on alcohol drank enough to get sick because A, they thought it was how it was done and the point of it to begin with and B, because they assumed moderation wasn't really possible if you were enjoying the effects of the alcohol at all. How hard did brethren teens who strayed try to keep from becoming complete train accidents to begin with they've been told they had no control over this outcome at all and is there really any better way to get attention and annoy your parents than screwing yourself and your life up royally the strictest branch of plymouth brethren i know is the group we call the taylor Hills brethren who suddenly dropped the we, we take no name but, name but christ's precious, precious name doctrine relatively recently for tax and copyright reasons and are now the plymouth brethren christian church
1: I feel the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church connects with people from local communities to businesses and outwards, as we touch the lives of so many people in so many ways.
0: The rest of us non-Plymouth Brethren Christian non-churches get that lack of name all to ourselves. They even have a domain name now www.plymouthbrethrenchristianchurch.org No domain name but Christ's? Now, they are the strictest Brethren group I've heard of yet, and something that seems obvious to me is that the stricter the groups get, the more problems with abuse in them and the more dramatic crash landings when young folks rebel against the group. The more ironclad and invasive the control structure, the more poorly the individual seems to operate once they tear themselves free from it and go lurching rudderlessly around town at high speed. I am plagued by a fairly rich tapestry of memories of my past, evidently, far from all of which are pleasant ones, though I do not claim never to forget or misremember anything of course. Psychiatrists, though, report two predictable problems for folks who were, like us, raised in what are tactfully called high-demand groups. They don't like to use the Z-word. The one problem commonly seen is severe memory repression, with leavers being unable to think about or remember a whole lot of their childhoods and upbringings. For that reason, podcasts like this can be something that one person told me I couldn't listen to for for more than a few minutes. minutes. It had functioned to prime that pump that threatened to drown the woman in question in thoughts and memories and feelings she'd spent decades, carefully, never having. The second problem for people like us, according to the psychiatrists, is that we have a difficulty forming and maintaining lasting social connections. We tend to be guarded and suspicious and protect ourselves, not expecting anyone to want to really get to know us well, We expect to get rejected and shunned, and we tend to reflexively use dividing from people and groups even more regularly than my own assembly as a whole did internally and collectively. We were raised to be experts at separation rather than connection. I don't have a lot of trouble remembering things, but I think I am typical in not managing to do whatever it takes to keep friends and love interests around for too, too long. My indoctrination and my fighting against it and deconstructing it Do not always make me easy to understand, deal with, or relate to. I'm difficult. And like I said earlier, there were grim prophecies bandied about that if any of us ever left our group, we would not prosper. We would not be blessed. God would speak to us. And as we knew, God speaks with death. I don't think that made our lives any easier. Certainly not our dating lives. And brethren folks tend to overdo things they're not supposed to be doing at all. I very carefully went against that having a first beer, a first PG movie, a cigar, rather than gorging myself. I kept control, rather than using things like beer or, in fact, heroin, to finally find a way to let go of some of it. Giving up control is really hard for me. To escape the psychological, evangelical ankle monitors and house arrest, my Brethren Underground friends were starting to hit it a bit hard for my liking as 30 approached. Many of them were just cigarette smokers now, and had been for years, having started with cigars and more interesting things to smoke, like pipes. I'd be sitting in a restaurant having a Guinness with Doug, who always seemed to order chicken fingers, talking about some book or other he'd been reading, often by Carlos Castaneda. We never agreed on anything. I was trying to get a clear understanding exactly what was wrong with Brethren theology and practice, and Doug was somewhat detached from it, as only his mother was Brethren, though she was very Brethren indeed. I also wanted to talk about some of the excesses of our little Pennsylvania group, and just like some people seem to suffer emotional damage whenever someone says anything that is less than glowing about their church group, Doug was this way about his friends and mentors, the Vetters. We'd sit in an Irish pub drinking our Guinness, Doug would eat his chicken fingers, and then he'd self-mockingly say, huh, I forgot I smoke, when the cravings hit him. I have always gone outside with smokers. I don't smoke, but if there's anything smokers do right, it's go outside more often than I do. So I use them as a reminder to go outside. I often went outside with Doug. But even thinking about the Vetters in a negative light seemed to upset Doug on a deep level, and he quickly changed the subject. Pot was a bit of a thing for some people in our Brethren Rebel Collective, but alcohol was all it took to really tear our circle up. What used to be exciting, fun get-togethers and vacations where we talk about the Bible and the division and movies and music and art and things like that were increasingly marred by the erratic behaviors of a few who were getting raging drunk and taking all of their significant psychological baggage out for a walk in front of everyone. Not fun. Kind of like someone unexpectedly dragging a rotting dog carcass through the living room at a fancy dress party and dumping it in the punch bowl. I didn't smoke, and I never really drank much. Too much of a control freak for that. I do remember how Nathan just kept buying everyone drinks, and how hard it was to avoid getting drunk if you were out with Nathan. You had to nurse your drinks like a mother of triplets, and even then, if you went to the washroom or something, leaving your drink unattended, you'd generally find another one sitting right beside it when you returned. It was a contest for me to drink as slowly as possible, and Nathan or Mark to buy me drinks anyway as quickly as they could. He could always find the holes in the
1: bottles, Even with a blindfold on Never kept his seat on the wagon Rolling off like a rolling stone I
0: went down one time to go see John Gorka play in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, not far from where the Vetters lived. John Gorka had gotten his start as a busboy at Godfrey Daniels Coffee House. He wrote songs about the regulars and eventually started getting up on stage there. When not in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, john often says on stage that the pennsylvania bethlehem differs from the other one in having fewer mangers and absolutely no wise men so john was back in town to play his old stomping grounds and my friends lived an hour away i knew all of his songs word for word many of which lyrics referred to people and places right around where we were i sat in the front row with nathan drove me there altogether too fast in an old 80s Mazda that occasionally spurted radiator fluid out of the ventilation. I know it was an 80s Mazda because I remember the big digital numbers of the speedometer going up to absolutely fictional values. I know it was spurting radiator fluid out of the ventilation because some of it splashed on my ankles.
1: on graduation, I stuck around because of Godfrey Daniels Coffee House, and I got a job uh, delivering flowers because, uh, I was a philosophy major, so I had, I was qualified uh, to deliver flowers, thoughtfully. And I did that for about three and a half years, and I, I met the uh, character in, who, was, uh, uh, who was the subject of the song. Uh, his, his, he used to help people park cars in the Fountain, Fountain Hill section of the town, on the south side of Bethlehem, uh, not, uh, not too far from Godfrey Daniels Coffee Houses. Um, mm-hmm. He used to help people park their cars, whether they wanted that help or not. <laughs> he, was, he, he, did, he was not employed by the city or anything, he was kind of a freelance uh, uh, car, parking uh, assistant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I found out his name was uh, uh, Francis, and this is called The Sentinel. Mm-hmm. the introduction is (laughs) over. I'm glad about
0: that too. We sat right in front of John Gorka, and I sang along with the songs, and afterwards, John just left. I was disappointed, as I've been hoping to finally meet him. Nathan and I walked out the door and went to the bar across the street. Godfrey Daniels is a coffee house and didn't serve alcohol, hence Nathan's wish to check out the bar across the street. I had barely started trying alcoholic beverages, so Nathan in the space of two hours bought me three different kinds of drinks without asking. Whiskey, cognac, and port, I think. I drank them in those two hours and realized I was starting to get a bit tipsy. That had never happened before. I got up and was walking back to the washroom when I noticed John Gorka sitting in a booth with a friend. I thought to myself, holy crap, I finally get to talk to John Gorka and I think I'm a bit drunk. I went up anyway and introduced myself and congratulated him on his show and told him which of his songs I liked to sing and play guitar on myself. John Gorka is a quiet, shy man, but we got a short conversation done. John was interested in the availability of his lyrics and chords on random websites as this was the 90s. I went to the bathroom and returned to the table where Nathan was waiting with a fourth drink for me, likely rum, which I waited a bit before drinking and I told him all about what had just happened. "'Did I look drunk?' I asked Nathan, very self-conscious. "'You're walking like someone who's trying very hard not to walk like he's drunk,' Nathan said in very vetter fashion. "'I was, and still am, someone who has one drink in an evening. Two is an indulgence for me. "'But being with Nathan was its whole own thing. "'Nathan drove us home at ridiculous speed, more hot antifreeze spurting out of the ventilation.' By then, alcohol had really become a constant down there, and I was annoyed by it. Turns out it's pretty hard to have a Bible study if people are very clearly drunk, particularly if they're in charge of the Bible study and are the most vocal participants. What's the point of justifying that you can drink alcohol without becoming an alcoholic if pretty much every other brethren person you hung out with had rapidly picked up a lifelong hobby of collecting empty bottles? Many people just stopped hanging out with most of us altogether. Others doubled down. I tried to deal with it, get to the bottom of it, see if there was light at the end of the tunnel for people who struggles with their roots I related to so strongly. We were all coming from exactly the same place, and almost nobody in the world would understand what we were going through. Not only did I grow up seeing some fairly cultish stuff accepted daily as usual and normal and right in my church group, I generally have a real blind spot about crazy. Both of my grandmothers had significant mental health issues and both lived with us at one point or other. Is anyone truly sane, like 100%? percent i found that the people who think they are are the most troubling. But I'm not a confident person who likes myself, never have been. So when I've encountered those people who feel or at least live as if they were fantastic and capable of almost anything, certainly more than just us regular folks... I found this either more than usually fascinating and fun to be around if it's charming and convincing, or starkly terrifying in some corporate ladder-climbing cases who are coming off as off and fake to absolutely everyone around them. But a lot of my male friends have convincingly exuded a superhuman confidence and complete lack of self-consciousness I have only been able to envy. Girls I have fallen hardest for have been fairly consistently the opposite, more like me. Dr. Freud would be interested to hear that my mother was a beautiful, sweet girl who positively could not believe that someone liked her when my dad bashfully started trying to get her attention, and he found that adorable. I tend to be alone and feel like crap about myself most of the time, yet pretty much always and only do whatever makes sense to me all of the time. That can look very like confidence. I don't do things that don't make sense to me. Small talk, for instance. There has been, therefore, an odd comfort and balance at times in hanging out with people who seem to be at the opposite spectrum from me in terms of feelings of self-worth. When I met an out-of-town guy at young people's group in my teens who wasn't quite connecting to others and burned a bit too brightly, I was interested immediately. What made him tick? Could I catch some of that comfort with myself? He did everything that occurred to him, and it never seemed to occur to him that anyone else might have any thoughts on the matter whatsoever. In our brethren circles, other people always had thoughts in the matter. And that guy ended up being a manic psychotic who took an immediate interest in my sister and needed police involvement to get rid of him before being institutionalized for life. And I found him really interesting to hang out with at first, until he started getting scary. Michael, Mark, and Nathan seemed to never remember to wonder what others might think of anything they did or said. When people were troubled by them, this seemed to entertain them. Doug and I could only aspire to a better level of comfort with ourselves. I've often worked jobs where I've tended to hang out with a person who had the biggest ego, or at least seemed to. Again, tried to catch a bit of that confidence and self-assurance second-hand. Oh, I'm going to do whatever I think I should, nine times out of ten, but I'm going to be entirely unsurprised if I'm resented or downright punished in some way for whatever it was, especially if it works out well. So, my American brethren friends back in the day were getting flakier and flakier, drunk more and more of the time, increasingly disparaging and dismissive of the other brethren folk and the routines and teaching there that I had also largely outgrown myself. They were apt to claim and seemingly believe that they might be especially spiritual if not supernatural in some way or other. A lot of talk about energy. If you want me to think you're wise and spiritual, just drop the word energy along with positivity and vibes into your sentences, and I'm gonna be using my positive energy to politely exit that room and the flaky vibes therein. But the behavior of my wounded bird mostly ex-brethren friends got more and more confidently erratic and gleefully out of control. They were like speeding locomotives that had decided to be cars instead, and were jumping the tracks one by one and rushing down the main thoroughfares of the town. We were raised to need those tracks to steer us at all, to keep us going straight. Straight to meeting and nowhere else. Now everything was flying to pieces. There were a lot of car accidents and near car accidents. Bill was very annoyed when Doug and Michael came to visit us in wintertime, but due to a big car accident in the snow they had, they had to stay longer than was polite while the car got extensively fixed. Troy had been in the car with them at the time. They could all have been killed. Doug didn't need to be drinking to get in these car accidents either. They just seemed to always be happening to him, completely sober, repeatedly. My sister told me last weekend that when she was visiting in the States one time, smoking a cigarette, which she never did at home, Nathan, generally viewed as the black sheep of the family, came up and said to her, Go home. Go back to Canada. When you come down here, you become us. We're a bunch of cigarette-smoking drunks. You don't have to be this. Go home. And she did eventually. But drinking was increasingly at the heart of what was going on, and many of us were increasingly relegated to the fringes of what was going on if we weren't drinking like that. It was increasingly a traffic accident we were in the car or two behind. I have heard this kind of lifestyle train wreck, what our brethren called shipwreck, is even worse for Taylor Halesleavers, for whom the culture shock and sudden freedom to choose the direction of their own lives is far more severe.
2: Um, Everything was so different for me than what I thought it would be that um, I took that whole period of time to adjust just to simple things, using a TV remote, Um, going to a restaurant. I'd never done that before. I didn't know um, how things worked or what I should or shouldn't do. It was completely foreign to me. For
0: all too many of them, it is straight to serious addictions to hard street or pharmaceutical drugs, prostitutes and gambling. A lot of tragic accidents too. There are too many suicides among these people. Way too many of their stories when you're talking to them end with, and of course he's dead now. When I've spoken to Taylor Hale's leavers, their stories are horrendous. They can't remember all manner of things about their own lives, and substance abuse is almost always a part of these stories after them being disowned by their church and families if it wasn't already a problem before that.
3: When Matt's dad died two years after he left the church, He was banned from the funeral service and forced to stand 20 metres away from Brethren members during the burial. I wanted to be
0: right there. I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to grieve with them. One huge difference in Taylor Hale's circles as compared to our own Tunbridge Wells Brethren is that we were teetotalers, frowning sanctimoniously on all alcohol consumed outside of the breaking of bread Sunday morning. This is not how the early brethren behaved in the victorian era when drinking in moderation and smoking were considered proper accompaniment to discussing the bible and part of being a good host the taylor hales group has for generations had a deep-seated culture of alcohol abuse it's something they joke about fairly freely this is mainly because its elders have traditionally rather than punished members who had alcohol in their homes punished homes that didn't have whiskey ready when elders paid an official visit the taylor hales brethren have generally been based in Australia unlike our group they have an official group leader bruce hales called their man of god whose word is treated as infallible and where many of our brethren were involved in business and were good with money in the absence of worldly entertainments, Taylor Hill's folks seem to be almost 100% about money. They work together globally and have a powerful business presence worldwide and have taken extraordinary steps in recent years to evade clampings down on their tax-exempt status. So there was no TV, there was no radio. It's now called the Plymouth Brethren Church.
3: Traced back to England in the 1800s, it spread to 18 countries with
0: tens of thousands of members worldwide. The church controls most of the wealth, investment, and real estate of the members worldwide, and they ensure they acquire a lot more wealth with it and don't pay taxes as a charitable organization or church. Problem number one with that was that so long as they insisted, as brethren groups do, that they were not merely a church, but in fact were God's chosen people, divinely gathered to his precious name, they'd have to pay taxes. Churches don't have to pay taxes. God's own chosen people, divinely gathered to his precious name, Do, so they suddenly declared themselves a church. Then, they needed a name, so the long-held doctrine of taking no name but Christ's own precious name went out the window, purely for tax reasons. The second problem was that it was pointed out that they wanted official status as a charitable organization. But not only did they do no charity work in any community whatsoever, they actually forbid their members eating and socializing with any non-members at all, including the poor, and non-members weren't even allowed to attend their services and events in their gated meeting halls with segregated plumbing, I'm not kidding, from surrounding buildings with no windows in most cases, so no one could even look in and see them do church. How exactly? is charity quote unquote, supposed to work when non-members aren't even allowed in the door how can you claim to be feeding the hungry when the church forbids you to eat with them when it was announced in Britain that the Taylor Hales Brethren were under investigation as to the legitimacy of their claim to be a charitable organization, they suddenly formed several highly publicized, well-funded charitable organizations for show that feed people while carefully not eating with them and just as carefully paying to be reported on in the news with pictures of them holding those giant checks.
3: The Brethren community engages in many activities as part of a commitment to the public good The Rapid Relief Team, or RRT as it's known, is on call 24-7 to provide emergency workers at major incidents with hot food and refreshments.
0: Problem solved. They did get caught rigging local elections financially through bribery, though their own members are forbidden to vote. They generally lean conservative but financially support anyone who's going to accommodate their tax-free status and financial dealings most. Officially, a charity organization. But if you leave, Your own parents aren't supposed to talk, let alone eat with you. Your wife is to divorce you, to separate from your evil as an official wicked person. She, and therefore the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, get at minimum half of all your stuff. You're not allowed to see your kids, and you're now out of a job and have lost all of your investments and business connections.
2: Are you allowed to have contact with your family? Um, I don't think it's a case of am I allowed to. I think it's more... Um, Will they talk to me. Um, They're under a lot of pressure not to talk to me um, from the church and also the, I suppose you could say, the indoctrination um, that the brethren have um, to not talk to people who have left. Um, In some ways, they're effectively not there or they've effectively died. Um, But you know they're there, but there's just no recognition. I have no regular contact with my family at all. Um, And most certainly, I haven't since the day I left with a number of my friends growing up from birth. They said to me, you know, Oval, and this is the place to be, and you know, you're not going to make it if you leave, and Mm -hmm. um, you you won't have success in life if if you leave. So there was that pressure to remain. A Perth man's revealed the heartache of seeing his family torn apart by what he believes is an extremist cult. Matt Cook was raised in the exclusive Brethren and was forced to leave because he's gay. He has bravely shared his story with 10 News First.
0: If I had grown up in an alcohol-soaked Taylor Hill's Brethren Assembly in a Brethren-only school, forbidden to hang out with anyone non-Brethren, I would be a whole lot worse off than
2: I am today. It's very controlling. You know, you're kind of watched every step that you take. You know, everything, every decision that you make, you have to get approval for. There's dress codes. There is, you cannot eat with you know, with other people who are out in the world.
0: I've been in contact with many Taylor Hales leavers for one of the books I wrote, and it really gave me perspective on how much worse my lot could have been. And I've also spoken to people who've left the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, and the Jehovah's Witness Church, and have heard stories that are way too similar to my own. Now, naturally, members of the PBCC would deny much of what I have just said about them and what's said on the news, especially if there were cameras rolling. And admittedly, as they do not speak to non-members about these issues and do not give comment on the news unless it's strictly controlled by them, my information is coming from various books written, television interviews given, and my own interactions online through email and Zoom chat with various former Taylor Hales exclusives dissatisfied leavers.
1: I feel the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church connects with people from local communities to businesses and outwards as we touch the lives of so many people in so many ways.
2: I remember them saying this would be easier for us if you
0: had died. I'm sure that people in my own group would also say that as I am negative about our group, my opinions ought to be dismissed too. It's simple. A positive person is being fair and honest clearly, and a negative person is mean-spirited, bitter, and dissatisfied, and should be therefore disbelieved as someone who never fit in properly, or was happy in the happy little group anyway. You have to consider the source, the word right from the source would tell you. And negativity equals bias, while positivity equals sincere honesty. So like I said, right through my 20s, starting before the division, And continuing long after, our brethren young people were experimenting with cigarettes and movies and drinking beer and fooling around and secretly getting tattoos and other forbidden things, and people disrespected us, resented us, and prophesied that the Lord would speak to us through death. And all through that time, like clockwork, bad things happened to us. There was an unbroken run where a young brethren person with some tenuous connection to me and people I knew died every year just like they said rose was a very sweet girl the kind of girl everyone i ever talked to really liked i met her several times she had confessed to having sex with her very serious boyfriend in her very serious relationship so she was kicked out of her assembly which had a reputation for elders being found guilty of incest and she was put under discipline required to absent herself from the meals and brethren social functions in her area And just when she'd satisfied them as to her true repentance, her abstinence from further infractions, and wheels were in motion to readmit her to fellowship in her assembly, she died suddenly in a tragic car accident. The Lord was speaking, people said. Rose's cousin Bruce had been suffering depression, and this death put him right over the edge. In, as I recall, the following calendar year, but not terribly long afterward, Bruce took his own life with a shotgun. I said something rueful to Michael about Bruce having blown his brains out, and Michael earnestly said no. His heart hurt him so much that he put the shotgun to his chest and blew that out of his body. This seemed to matter to Michael very much. Dawn was one of those laughing life of the party girls, a blonde, athletic person who went to meeting with my American cousins. She was brutally stabbed to death in her family kitchen by a family member with serious emotional problems. Stabbed 17 times, as I recall. The Lord was speaking, they said. Christina was the daughter of a brethren missionary to China. She was a very nice blonde girl who was bilingual in Chinese. The whole family was. I believe she was distantly related to my cousin's dad. I dimly remember meeting her a few times when I was a preteen. Christina died suddenly in a tragic boating accident the one year. That stuff casts a pall over a little religious group. The Lord was speaking, people said. Were we listening? The old folks wondered. As alcohol and untreated psychological woundedness ran more and more amok in my circle of rebellious brethren friends, and I lost various non-Christian friends and my few remaining brethren connections alike because of some of it, We talked about all of this. I talked about it with Cedar, John, Michael, Mark, Bethany, Erica, Chris, Marcy, Nathan, and Doug. Every time some old Brethren person knowingly and solemnly intoned, The Lord is speaking, it made our blood boil. But way too much of the prophesied ruination, what the Brethren called shipwreck, seemed to be going on or about to go on. Things got a bit strained among us. We started to see a bit less of each other. Thirty was on the horizon for us all. And most of us began to work too much and not take care of ourselves or our social connections. Then one evening before my Kung Fu class, Michael phoned me on my very first cell phone. I stood in the parking lot as the sun set and listened to him. He was very quiet and serious and precise. Everything was lit orange around me as Michael spoke. To the best of my second and third hand recollection, this is what happened. Doug had shown interest in a small revolver the Vedder parents had had, and they'd let him have it, of course. I mean, why not? They were Americans. Doug loved army stuff and spy novels. The evening before, Doug, having a long habit of joking around on the phone with Michael, had called. You know what I've got? Doug asked. The gun, he told Michael. And bullets. I don't think either Michael or Doug were drinking that evening. Doug sounded fine, jokey, lighthearted, and glib. You know what I could do? Doug could play Russian roulette with the gun, is what he could do, he told Michael. Michael agreed that yes, he supposed if Doug wanted to, that was something he could do. Michael thought maybe Doug was referring to something Mark had done recently. Mark had taken that same revolver and in front of Doug, put a bullet in the chamber, spun it, held it to his head, and pulled the trigger. The gun had clicked, Mark had spun it again, and repeated the same thing. To make his point, apparently, that a mere handgun couldn't take his life, Mark pulled the trigger on an empty chamber three times in all and put the gun down, triumphant. Doug said he'd put one bullet in one chamber and spun it. He joked around about not knowing whether the gun went to his temple or in his mouth. Michael heard the clicking sound and firmly believed this was a joke, as it was exactly the kind of joke that Doug was likely to play on people. But Doug said, Didn't work. I'll try it again. Click. I'll try again. Michael was getting tired of this nonsense that Mark had already done. There was too much of this craziness going on. This third time, Michael heard what he believed to be some books getting loudly knocked over, a sliding sound, and a sigh. Then nothing. The phone line stayed open. Michael was annoyed with Doug for playing such a nasty trick and eventually hung up when Doug wouldn't answer him. When they went by later to check, Doug was at his table, long dead, with blood and brains all over the floor and wall behind him. Once the police were done, Mark, Michael, and Nathan had to clean the place up. Doug's sister Amy, too. Amy complained loudly to anyone who would listen that Doug had left such a disgusting mess for her to clean up. Mark had always very much been Doug's mentor. At this point, Mark got very, very drunk, and has seldom stopped drinking straight whiskey for very long since. We all went down to Pennsylvania for the funeral, and Mark was drunk the whole time we were there. He was shattered, going for days without sleep. He smiled and pretended he was fine. Michael also smiled a bit disturbingly and fixedly, and said he was fine. Cedar was looking, she said, to kick my sister's ass for not just marrying Doug. The vetter's father came up to my sister and quietly and somberly said, You know, when a young man lies dead, there's often a young woman behind it. The night before the funeral, Mark made a big bonfire. We all gathered around it, people having driven down from all over. A bottle of Bushmills Irish whiskey was handed around, and even various people who normally didn't drink at all took a sip from it in honor of Doug. As the bottle went around and the fire blazed, Mark brought something out of the basement. It was the huge circle of blood-soaked carpet they had cut out of Doug's apartment. They put this on the fire. Nathan wasn't seen for weeks afterward without wearing the one denim shirt still stained over the pocket with the blood of his friend that he'd had to clean up. The Brethren doctor who delivered me as a baby was an up-and-coming Brethren preacher pastor figure, and he drove down to officiate the funeral. Mark was wasted at the funeral the whole time, He did not shower. He did not sleep. The guy officiating the funeral knew that some of us who were going to have snacks afterwards were under discipline, wicked people kicked out for various things. Fornication, impaired driving, public intoxication, not sleeping with one's wife-to-be, parody. He spoke consolingly to us at the funeral but refused to shake our hands or eat in the same room with us. He needed to protect his brethren's status through careful, dutiful separation from our evil, especially now that, once again, the Lord had spoken. In fact, this guy took a plate of snacks out to his car and ate it in there alone before driving away also alone. Now, one of the truly complicating things about this whole occasion was that Doug had had a crush on my sister, recently back from Japan, who attended the funeral, but Doug and Bethany, had had some kind of undiscussed, denied romantic relationship, too. In a manner I've frequently seen among brethren folks, they have been walking around holding hands and rubbing each other's backs and insisting to all and sundry that they were not dating. A lot of brethren I know do not dating. It allows deniability and a just kidding if the thing doesn't work out. Bethany had had a thing for Mark, but Mark married someone else, and Bethany eventually agreed to marry Mark's brother Michael. My sister had had no interest in Doug, and little in Michael or Mark, though everyone got a crush on my sister. And Michael and Bethany's wedding was to be soon, and Doug was to be in the wedding party. The whole thing was planned. Now, to this day, I don't know if Doug killed himself 100% on purpose, or simply wanted to be able to say he'd played Russian roulette this one time and had survived it. I don't know if Doug was shattered that his best friend Michael was marrying Bethany rather than Doug marrying her, I don't know how much of it was really about my sister. I don't know what went on between Doug and Mark. I don't think I'll ever know. My guess is Doug was, again, trying and failing to copy Mark. Brushes with death seemed to make life more exciting and worth living for Doug. We were all raised with a strictly enforced Bible blandness, and many of us sought intense experiences to a troubling degree. All I know is that while getting ready for the funeral, we were also getting ready for a wedding. Drunk Mark helped Bethany alter her wedding dress and did everything he could to single-handedly make sure everything about her wedding was going to be perfect. Mark threw himself entirely into this one thing. He didn't shower, he didn't sleep, he didn't stop drinking bottle after bottle of whiskey ever. There always was a lot of pseudo-Christian spiritual talk in our circle and John started in when we were sitting around before that bonfire. Doug had loved us and had been a master strategist, John said through sobs. Doug had perfectly chosen the exact moment to give us this precious gift. Doug knew that our group had been drifting apart lately, had been having its troubles, and Doug had done what he knew was the only thing that would truly forever help bind us together, join us in healing over this. Stuff like that. It was... Very garbled, an attempt to reframe all of the sad situation. To put what the police called a death by misadventure into a heroic narrative. To put a positive spin on it. John was struggling. We all were. I wasn't buying a word of what John said. It gave me no comfort at all. You can kick the boy out of the cult, I thought, but you can't kick the cult out of the boy. And this was some cult shit. Stuff we were inventing ourselves, too. And I knew somehow that after a brief coming together to mourn Doug, that in most ways, this was the end of our little group. It's been years since I've seen any of them. I did my 40s, my MS diagnosis, troubles at work, loss of a beloved cat, and several failed relationships and friends who took their own lives, all without them to lean on even digitally. But that dark week down in Pennsylvania, I had written a song, the song that's featured in this week's podcast. I recorded it back then. And before the bonfire, I got an acoustic guitar and sang it for the room. I don't think people liked it. The lack of pseudo-spiritual mumbo-jumbo, the lack of putting a positive spin on what was for me a tragedy when they all clearly thought that view of it entirely inappropriate and wrong-headed. The unvarnished frankness, the expression of genuine loss. That's not what we were doing there then. But it was me, again, not fitting in stubbornly, not doing what everybody wanted. Before I left, Michael's father took me aside and told me that, now that Doug was gone, I was the new Doug, and I had to step up. I didn't know what that meant, and I would just lost someone close, so I chalked it up to more Pennsylvania craziness and went home. A few weeks later, I got in my battered old Chevy Cavalier again asked for more time off work from the internet company where I worked that was about to lay me off and go out of business, sparking my decision to finally be a teacher, even if it meant going to school in America, and I drove to Chicago, where the wedding was to be held. I had been asked to consider not attending the wedding ceremony itself, as the guy who would refused to eat with us at the funeral he officiated was refusing to eat with various of us at the wedding, too. I was predictably difficult, rather than accommodating and understanding. I said I didn't mind. At all. In fact, I wouldn't come at all. That would really be simplest. Well, that wasn't the deal. I was supposed to come, not attend the wedding and reception because I was a wicked person, and then hang out with the happy couple and our friends afterward. We somewhat less brethren folks were all of us still very young at this point and unsure how to best balance difficult relatives, weddings, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, and excommunications. It was all very new to all of us. When I said I wasn't going to bother driving down to Chicago to a wedding ceremony I wasn't allowed to actually be present for, I was told that I was actually welcome to attend. And so I did. I was asked to bring one of the samurai swords my sister had gotten me from Japan to the wedding to be used to cut the wedding cake. So I drove it on down there across the border. When I arrived, things were fairly off. Mark had degenerated further since I'd last seen him, still walking around wrapped in his blanket with a bottle of whiskey hidden under it, unwashed and not sleeping, still putting the finishing touches, seemingly single-handed, on Bethany and Michael's wedding ceremony. My cousin was there, and asked Mark how he was. Mark said, Far too busy to waste time standing around talking to the likes of you. Bethany was beyond stressed and visibly grieving the loss of Doug, who'd spent a summer living in her parents' basement a few years before, when they'd been pretty seriously not dating. The night before the wedding took place, Mark, incoherent and seemingly delusional, tried to jump off the roof of the hotel. He had to be talked and eventually tackled and wrestled down safely. I wasn't there. I wasn't part of that inner circle anymore. I was someone to keep things from. I couldn't be trusted not to tell, or, in fact, podcast things of this kind. thing about me is, if you share a secret with me, I'll keep it. But if you keep a secret from me, I'll probably share it in a podcast. It has something to do with mutual trust, given and shared. The Vedders are bohemian and arty to the nth degree, so the wedding ceremony was an elaborate performance. People wore extravagant costumes. The wedding party was made up of an odd mix of worldly and brethren people. Almost everyone in the audience standing in front of the stage upon which the wedding ceremony took place was given lines to say at certain points, and Bible verses to read out, and so on, even if they were atheists. My sister, a wicked person under discipline, was up on the stage, part of the wedding party, because of how close friends she was with Bethany. She read a poem for the bride and groom. I, a wicked person, was in the audience, like Mark, and like Mark, given no part to play whatsoever, apart from furnishing the wedding sword. I stood next to someone i didn't know and he had a line to say i had no role at all this felt odd as though i was clearly not michael and bethany's closest friend at the time they certainly were mine but their closest friends were up on the stage with them doug was in the wedding party though i may have been deemed the new doug But after Marty played the accordion and sang a song for the bride and groom, after George played guitar and sang a song for the bride and groom, and after I stood in the audience and sang nothing for anyone, either because I was a wicked person or because I didn't make the cut in terms of friendship, it was time for Doug's part in the ceremony. I never wrote the bride and groom, a song though I normally would have, because I knew I wouldn't be allowed to sing one. It was causing a great deal of drama that I was intending to eat supper with everyone, just like Bethany's twin uncles, alike wicked persons, one for recording the brothers' meetings. I don't know what the other uncle had done, but he took his own life some time after the wedding. On this day, though, they were both there, much to the chagrin of the guy who delivered me 30 years earlier and officiated Doug's funeral a month earlier. That guy also happens to be another of Bethany's uncles. When I attended his son's wedding the following year, He had to shake my hand because he was the father of the groom and in the wedding party. But it was time for Doug's part in the wedding ceremony. All the lights were put out apart from a single spotlight shining down on an ordinary chair that sat alone in the middle of the darkened stage. It got suddenly, startlingly silent as we didn't know what was going to happen. And then the PA thunderously blasted Striper with Michael Sweet singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it was triumphant beautiful and powerful, it was perfect.
3: My eyes have seen the glory of the He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his day.
0: I don't think Doug liked metal or striper at all. But this, somehow, was exactly the thing to do. If Vetters, including the newly minted Bethany Vetter, knew about anything, it was spectacle and performance. And of course, I knew who'd played them that song for the first time, anyway, on a portable tape deck at a Bible conference one evening. The same guy who played the Meatloaf, Tom Waits, and Leonard Cohen for the first time. They never picked up a liking for John Gorka, the Northern Pikes, or King's X. though. I'd tried. I packed up my samurai sword, some vanilla icing still on the blade, drove back to Canada alone, and went back to work. A funeral and a wedding. The Lord had been speaking. The self-fulfilling prophecies chanted like ritualistic curses were fulfilling themselves one after another right on cue. And then 9-11 happened a month later. Mark got married. And told people that his having had sex for the first time was so spiritually significant and cataclysmic that it caused the Twin Towers to fall. In this song, I included the sound of a gunshot, a couple snippets of Doug talking.
3: Okay, um, yeah, uh, really?
0: My sister singing with me about our dead friend.
3: Like smashed up cars bowed out of hell Casting in the New York
0: smells And I reached out to Harold, a guy I knew at the high-tech company, who played keyboard for me. Lend me a 70s synth of some kind that I made white noise with. Some people, upon hearing this song, thought that Don, D-A-W-N, was Don, D-O-N, and that this was a list of my ex-lovers, who mostly appeared to be male. Fact is... This is a list of dead brethren people in their 20s, people I knew, people who died suddenly and too young, and old folks said the Lord was speaking. Like I said, I know a whole lot of dead people.
3: My short life seemed too much death From a crushed out spirit or a cut off breath I find it hard, so hard to weep But news like this cuts me down deep We could not agree matter what head banged on doors other people shut yeah you were reckless yeah you weren't scared bewildered me with the things you did we could not agree one for many things this is the end this is the end.